it, that moment my wife got sick was when I realized I am so dependent on her that if she goes, I'm done. How am I raising my kids alone? How am I going to do this? How am I going to have a job and a family? I am not as connected to my children as I could be, meaning I was there totally, but I was in another world. I was the guy at the basketball game where my daughter didn't get the shot in and I was like, great shot. She's like, I didn't get it in. I was on my Blackberry. Like I was there, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I had to get real, real with myself. But number two, I had to learn how to rely on Rich and how to get comfortable with Rich. And I, and, and so that was number one. Number two is parents. I was not going to repeat what my parents did. I was going to be present for my kids. I was going to let them know they were seen, heard, and valued. I was going to let them know they were loved and safe. And I was going to be a part of their lives. Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields. By presenting their stories, uncensored and uncut, I hope to inspire you to take a step back, look within, and evaluate your path and journey. Today's guest is Rich Keller. Rich is a catalyst. That's his one-word personal brand, and he's on a mission to transform one million lives, one word at a time. With over 20 years of experience as a brand marketing executive for some of the world's most iconic consumer brands like Godiva Chocolate, Chips Ahoy Cookies, and Planters Peanuts, Rich travels the country as a motivational speaker showing young entrepreneurs how crafting their personal brands and their business ventures around their one-word core value is the pathway to achieving excellence. Rich and his wife are also cancer survivors, with Rich having beaten testicular cancer and his wife beating breast cancer. There's much more to his story and Rich does a fantastic job of illustrating it and bringing out the lessons learned. In this interview, we get into how and why Rich felt invisible growing up, his time as an accountant, the shift to working in marketing for consumer brands, battling cancer, and the current work he does in helping people find their one word. And so, without further ado, my interview with Rich Keller. So, um, before we get started, I want to ask you about the bandana that you're wearing. What is yes. uh, what is that? It says Survivor and it says Survivor on it. Yeah. Um, it's actually part of my story. Um, okay. I, I mean, I'll give you the two minute or the ten second version. Um, I grew up invisible in my life and home, and I used to wear bandanas when I was a teenager, and I got noticed. And just through the years, I when I didn't wear them, people would recognize me. When I wore them, people knew who I was, and and then I, as a cancer survivor in the show, and it's just become a staple on my head. I wear it all the time. I have a full head of hair under here. <laughs> and, um, and, and really the truth of what I do today is I'm a catalyst. That's my personal brand. And I let my head, my head drive who I was versus my heart. And that's sort of what I speak about on stage is that what you do, the, the identity is not caught up in being a survivor it's, it's about who you are. And so, mm-hmm. um, but I will also tell you from my perspective, I mean, it, just the fact that you asked me about that, people are always, I'm, I've been on planes, people have offered me money. People want, I'm surprised, no, I'm surprised nobody's taken it off my head. 
but I've gotten stopped. I mean, people ask me if I'm on the show all the time. I mean, it's just a great <laughs> conversation starter, but I, right. it made me visible. It made me visible as a kid. And, and then I got cancer and just the show started and I started wearing this and it's on my head. <laughs> that's really it. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, and I love when people, people are like, what are you wearing or what's going on here? So um, it's me. It's my brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. as we'll talk about because that's what i do today so yeah that's cool so it's from the show survivor is that well this is from the show yeah okay i, I have about 10 of them but um and that's oh, another okay. thing people are like people are like can i get one i'm like i got it when the show was on i mean it's i didn't <laughs> call jeff probes it wasn't like specially made for me it was <laughs> i wanted it and so um, yeah yeah uh thank you for asking i have about 100 of them i wear others not just this but uh, okay wow. this is my staple my yeah, staple in fact if you can see behind me my i was i ran the new york city marathon and i'm wearing a bandana i wore i mean while i ran i wore a usa one so i mean i've been wearing them my whole i went to my whole life from my from teenager on so there's the proof that i wear that it's not just this <laughs> right right yeah that's cool and so let, let's bring this back to the beginning um where did you grow up um, I grew up in uh, Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn, New York. My my uh, my mom is Canadian, so I I guess I'm half Canadian, um, even though I grew up in the U.S. And uh, and then we moved to a borough called Staten Island uh, when mm-hmm. I was ten. And um, yeah, so those two places I I spent up until college. Uh, and then after college, I lived in New York City and then for like five or six years and went to business school and then got married and the rest is history, dude. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. What did your parents do for work? Um, my my dad, you know, it's so funny when people ask me that because I don't really know exactly, like my dad managed a paper goods company. Like I always just remember growing up that we just had tons of paper goods that, that, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I used to, like, I used like a hundred napkins at, at every meal because my dad, you know, managed a company that brought home paper goods all the time. And I look back now and I'm like, that's why I have a obsession with napkins. Um, <laughs> and my mom was, my mom was an administrative assistant. So she worked for many, uh, uh, worked for a lot of hedge fund people, um, a lot of financial executives and, um, so yeah, both my parents worked. Mom, my mom worked outside the home the whole time. Um, but I, I, I just remember paper goods. Like we were drowning in plates and napkins <laughs> and cups. That's funny. Yeah. yeah. Well, the things you remember is, you know, right. a child. So I, so my dad managed some, I think it was a couple of companies over his career, you know, over the times he worked, but it was always within the world of paper goods chase. Mm-hmm. Right. Interesting. So it sounds like business was, you know, somewhat of a big part of your family growing up. You know what? Um, I'll be honest with you. I share a lot of this. I share a lot of this on stage as a motivational speaker. Um, I grew up in a very disconnected home. And what I mean by that is um, there was, there was really no family unit. Um, I was a kid who I look back now. It's like, it's very easy to talk about my story but I didn't know this then. 
but I was very disconnected um, from, I, I was longing for connection as a kid. And I just grew up in a home where my parents fought all the time. There was always tension in the house. And I have a twin sister and an older brother. And I just never, I never felt enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't athletic enough. My brother played, my brother played football in high school. He went to Princeton to play football. My sister was an athlete. I wasn't, I bowled. Like I wasn't an athlete and um, I wasn't skinny enough. I, I, I wouldn't say I had massive weight issues, but I definitely um, had issues with my weight compared to them. And, you know, in terms of not being smart enough, you know, my brother and sister both, both went to Ivy League colleges. I couldn't get into one. But yet I graduated four out of 800 in my high school. My sister graduated too. Like it was always like, you know, bridesmaid, never the bride. So I think in my house, it wasn't that it was business that was spoken about. It was education. Okay. I remember at every meal, it was about education in the sense that you're going to get a degree and, um, and then you're going to go get a job. Like it was just like, that was, I, I think in many ways, I had a very success is the best revenge attitude. It's like, I'm going to show you that I'm, that I am enough and I am X, Y, Z. So it was more like, yeah, I am going to go to college and I am going to get a degree and I am going to go to work. And it, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't done in a ruthless way. It was just in my head. I was like, oh, watch me. And so <laughs> So yeah, I'd say it was education way more, but okay. it was also very disconnected. So I just, I, 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 there was a lot going on in my head growing up that I couldn't put together until later on, much later on, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I think that sounds like that ties into what you mentioned earlier in, in terms of wanting to be, be seen. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Oh, you know, I didn't know it then, but and I also had a ton of friends. I mean, this this wasn't a you know I'm a I'm sitting there in the corner as an outcast. Not at all. It was you know I'm very people driven. But I think in my house, like it was always a joke. You know, it was always like, oh yeah, you're the last one, or and it was we laughed. But I don't know if it was such a laugh. And I think because my house had so much tension from my parents, you know, fighting all the time. Mm -hmm that I just, I was the appeaser. I was the one, like I was the one that made dinner because I thought if we all came to the table, then it would all go away. I was the one that planned the events we're gonna do because I felt like, oh, let's be social, they won't fight. And it was just hard. It was, you know, um, I smothered my twin sister because I had no connection with anybody else. So I think in many ways I, I just, swallowed her and I cried in school all the time I was never with my friends that was another thing as a twin growing up my parents made the decision to put us in different classes I was never in class with my friends because they weren't I wasn't smart enough and and they were in her class and it was always just like what am I doing here so I would cry in school and I would like I want my sister and then I'd get her and she would be like what are you doing and I I just I didn't have language then and it was just like why am I so alone but yet I, I, but yet it was outgoing and I had friends, but it was just a very tumultuous time in my head because I was longing for connection. I was longing for that family unit that mm -hmm. I thought everybody, maybe everybody's like this. I don't, you know, I just, you, you grow up with what you know. So, right. so that, that there was a lot of that going on in my head as a kid and I couldn't decipher it until much later on, you mm -hmm. know, what that, what that was all about. Interesting.
And so how did that, I guess, overall, overall theme play out as you got into high school? Um, you know, I think as I look back, as I said, I think it was a success is the best revenge. Like I'll show you. I also think I used a lot of my people skills. I used humor a lot, you know, um, to connect with people. I really was the person who tried to make friends and relationships because I couldn't get it at home. Um, and then on top of that, it was, I mean, I, I, like I said, I graduated four out of 800. I did something right in high school. Right. I was smart. I worked really hard. I got involved. And that's the thing. It's like, if you didn't know really the inside of, nobody knew what was going on in the house. That was another thing. Although I didn't realize my friends really knew like we, you know, to the outside world, you know, he has these three smart kids, parents, you know, they look like great people. And, and there was a lot of fighting going on in the house and just a lot of turmoil. And I thought nobody knew. And like, my friends were like, no, we knew, we knew, but, um, but to the outside world, it was these, they're great. I had a twin sister. I was always like, Oh, you're a twin. You know, how does it feel to be a twin? I'm like, I don't know what it feels like to not be a twin, you know? And, um, Never got along with my brother. Absolutely never. I don't remember any time in the in any years that we had a relationship with very different people. Um, and I, you know, I just, it was just a weird, like, does anybody see me? Does anybody notice that I'm here? Um, I'm, a, I'm a big giver, big giver. And I just was in a home of people that I just don't think thought that way. Um, you know, I was very close to my mom growing up, but I think she just had so many challenges with raising three kids and my father who they didn't get along so it was just a lot of weird crazy stuff going on and so I just went my merry way in high school out of my way I'm gonna I'm gonna show you show you but not in an outward way like I didn't go around telling people I'm gonna win it was just I did it I I I needed to I guess become visible in many ways and this was how I was gonna do it so High school was great. Um, you know, I lived on a, you know, this is, this is 1984, 85 when I graduated. Like there was no internet, there was no email. So like right. I had a nucleus of friends on my block. Like it was like eight or 10 of us, all close, all walked to school together, all got on a bus when we went to high school. Very different game. There was no like, what are you doing later? Oh, I'll text you. Like nothing. Like if you didn't see them or make a phone call with a rotary phone, which sounds crazy because I'm not 90, but that it was a whole different, you went out and played outside in front of your house. It was not, it was a very different time. So I just, you know, clung to connect to people that would connect with me and then did my homework. I mean, I definitely studied. I was a worker, no doubt. Right. Yeah. And does, um, is your relationship with your brother, does it still kind of, um, do you not like, is it still not that great today or have you since? Yeah. I mean, um, that's a whole other subject that, I mean, I'm happy to talk about, but I, I'm fully estranged from my family today. Like I haven't been in contact with them for over 25 years, which is not just that moment or that time at home. Um, I had cancer at 26. My brother and sister were not there for me at all. I made a decision to move forward. My parents weren't happy about that. And it's a lot of, I'm sure we'll talk about it in some mm-hmm. of the areas in the interview and the questions that you have, but it's, um, it, I, I, it came to a point where I just had to make a decision. You know, I look back now, once again, didn't really have the language then at 26 or 27 to make that decision, but it was, I, I needed to live my own life. And if you're not willing to, 
accept what I want to do. And it was really more my parents because when I chose not to have anything to do with my brother and sister anymore, they just had a different point of view about it. And it was just becoming a little bit, um, like it was just poison. It was like they would show up and then it would be a scene. And it was just like, they, I couldn't do it anymore. I was, I was married, I, I had a child. I started realizing, and I, this was way before therapy that I went to, but I just decided at that point, I'm either gonna repeat what's going on or I have to fix it. And I made that decision right or wrong. And so um, best thing I ever did, as we'll get into, but, I, but, but yeah, it's been a full estrangement and I tried to go back. We, it just, it didn't work. Um, and I just, you know, sometimes you just got to move on. You just got to move yeah. on. And, and I did. And 20 plus 26, 27 years later, it was a great move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I may have I may have thrown you for a loop a little bit on that one, Chase. I, <laughs> I apologize, but I'm just honest. I mean, I yeah, I, speak, yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I speak about it on stage today. It's just you know sometimes you gotta you gotta drive your own car, and I I just realized at that moment I'm not going to repeat it. It was starting to become repeatable, and I was having some issues, not necessarily grave ones with my wife, and but I started seeing, oh boy, this is not going to end well, and I made that made that courageous decision and you know, you got to do what you got to do. Right. Right. Okay. And so, um, you end up going to college at Binghamton university. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, it was called SUNY Binghamton at the time, but they added university now. So it feels okay. sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And, uh, you major in accounting there. I did. I did okay. major in accounting. Yes. Okay. Yes. What was driving that decision? <sighs> That was not a good decision, Chase. Just <laughs> I'll state up front. I mean, it was, it was a good decision in that, um, you know, accounting is the basis for everything. And I, you know, running a business, you know, the fundamentals are important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I went to college and it was like, you're going to get a job after college and you're going to find something that's going to guarantee you that you're going to get a job. And it was either management or accounting. Like they had two, two tracks at Binghamton. And I said, okay, I don't really know what management means. And I don't know what you can do with management. You know, I didn't really understand. And it was a very foggy time as well. I didn't go to college to find myself. Like it's just very different than it is today. Right. You know, like no internet email, like nothing. So I went with like, I was on a mission. I'm going to get a degree. And so I accounting, oh, you can get jobs after college. Great. Let's go. And so it was more like security than it was, you know, finding myself. And it was not the right move because the last thing I you would ever place me is in a, in an accounting profession. It's not negative. I'm not disparaging the profession. It didn't match who I was. But at the time, that was the game you played. You graduated college, you got a job. And when you had a really good job, it was like, wow, okay, good. And, you know, and yet I was when I got there, like first couple of months out of my, out of my, out of college, I was like, oh no, 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 this, I don't know how to get out of this, but I'm going to figure it out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Interesting. And I guess outside of, outside of that, did you enjoy your four years in college? Like, did you find the experience valuable? I did. I loved, I loved college. Um, I'm, you know, that's also, absolutely had a great experience no question um but 
you know, if I had to do it over again, I, I, I actually think I would have done it much differently. You know, it wasn't, um, I, I didn't go to college with the intention of I'm going to meet as many people as I can. I'm going to connect my, I didn't know how powerful networking was in college, you know, right. in those days. And so, but I, I absolutely had a blast. I had, a, I was in a fraternity. I had tons of friends. Um, I worked very hard. In fact, I was laughing as I was reviewing some of the questions that you were going to ask me. My two college roommates to this day will, they will do a whole skit and make fun of me on how I used to come into the apartment and leave because I, I went to the library all the time. Hmm. It was like, I came in with my knapsack, I left with my knapsack and I studied all the time. And it was part of, number one, it was hard. I mean, it was just hard. You know, college was not easy, especially accounting, but it was also, I yeah. think as I look back, like, I'm going to graduate with something that proves that I am visible and I'm here and I'm smart and it doesn't matter what school you go to. And it was always in the back of my mind. Like I, I didn't get into an Ivy. I didn't get into an Ivy. And, and so I think it was more, and it wasn't a vengeance thing. It was just, that was the way my brain worked at the time. And so, um, Definitely had a great time. I would do some things over, but I don't look back on my college years and go, what a waste. Not at all. It was incredible. It was, you know, it definitely shaped a lot of who I am. And when I look back now, you know, it, it started me on a great route, even though I didn't stay in accounting. What a great way to start your post-college. I mean, that is not a negative thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. And in contrast to kind of what you, what you focus on present day, it sounds like that, and you, I think you'd already mentioned it, but you didn't really use college as a time to kind of build your own sense of your own personal brand or identity. You were just yeah. focused on that, getting that job and the, like getting good grades and all of that. Yeah, you know, personal branding was not even, it wasn't even a discussion. It wasn't even a realm. It wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. just it, it just didn't exist in that. In that pers- from that perspective, you were like a you were like a visionary if you have even said that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was it was I think it was just a lot of us. I think we all felt that way. We just went, you know, and it was the first time, you know, not being at home. So it really didn't have any any in that. And you know, I look back now, and I, I it tell my story is consistent in terms of my 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 desire to prove that I was, you know, visible and smart and I can do this. And, but I, I would be completely out of left field if I said, oh yeah, definitely my identity. Oh, I was writing down notes about who I was. No, today, totally different story. It would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And so uh, you graduate college. Do you go into straight into like an accounting job afterward? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. I worked at, I worked at what, I mean, it was called Coopers and Librand. It's now PricewaterhouseCoopers. Okay. It was the big eight. That was another thing. It was like, I'm getting a job in the big eight. Like it was called the big eight then, the big eight accounting firms. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to the big eight. Like no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Although I will tell you, I had very high aspirations to go to law school. Um, that was another thing I thought about. And I worked over the summers before my full-time job at Cooper's, I worked at a law firm. Um, it was called Davis Polk and Wardwell. And they'll, they'll never forget it. And I was like a, um, I was like a gopher more. I wasn't a paralegal. I was more like an assistant. I just, but 
I, 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 it was really great. I made a very good money. It was one of those where like I worked a lot of hours and you got paid overtime and yada, yada, yada. Um, because I thought I was going to go to law school. Um, and right. obviously I was an accounting major, but I went to a company called Coops and Librand. It was a great, you know, firm to start your career. Mm-hmm. Hated it from maybe five minutes when I walked in. <laughs> this, this isn't going to work. And I spent six years there. Wow. Yeah. What was it like in particular that you did not enjoy? Um, so I was a I was in the accounting division and <clears throat> account. That's you know one of the things you don't learn in school. They don't teach you what like you're really going to do. And accounting sounds so sexy. Meanwhile, you audit, and you literally you get to the client. First thing the client says, they don't even say hello. They're like, "Oh, you're here. How long are you here for?" Okay, they they want they want nothing to do with you. Right. They stick you in the back room. You get a calculator and a bunch of papers, and you literally sit in the back room and you're auditing. You're reviewing a million things. Sometimes you get to go talk to the client. Sometimes, and I just realized at that moment, oh, I am so not a back office person. Oh no no no. And I was the guy. I was the guy who went to the went out and made friends with everyone. Made friend to this day, I'm still friends with one of my first clients, and I made friends with them. And I would, you know, knock chit chat lunch, because I was just like, oh my god, back to the story. Like this is so disconnecting. No way. Um, and you know, I I also didn't love the industry I was in. I was in financial services. I thought that's it, financial services. I'm going to get on Goldman Sachs, and I'm going to get on all these companies. And it was just like. That is so not who I am. And it was so, so honestly, it was, you know, you're talk about me being invisible. Boy, I was in, incredibly invisible in accounting, like in the back room, tell us when you're leaving. We don't even care that you're here. And what do you need from us? And I was like, okay, Rich, this, this, we got to figure out a new game here. But I right. stayed because everybody was like, oh, you got to stay three to five years and had no idea I was going to business school after that. No idea. I was like, you got to stay three to five years and you, you'll be fine, Rich. It's a job. You get over it. And so it was, I lived that way. I lived in the city. Had a, you know, my roommate was one of my best friends and okay, I went out social. Like, like there was no issue other than I can't believe I'm in this career where I'm in the back room. It was a back room job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so what was it that was that drove you to stay there for for six years? I think um well what really happened was I was in financial services and then I got moved to uh, so you know you were it's called you were on the beach like when you were done with the client they put you on another one and and then I was put on this uh I was put on Brooks Brothers which is a big retail mm-hmm. clothing brand. And I started feeling like, oh, okay, maybe I can get into this. And then, like, I had the moment which, like, really changed the game for me, which is, which is when I got put on the Unilever brand. Uh, Unilever is a consumer products company. And I think at the time they made whisk laundry detergent. It was definitely not Tide. That's P&G. And I got to tell you, I arrived there the first day at the client, and I still smell the laundry detergent today. And I was like, oh, I've arrived. <laughs> this is what I wanted. And it wasn't even accounting. It was, it had no, it was no, not accounting that I wanted to do. I'm like, oh, I want to be in consumer products. Like I didn't even, I don't think I had the same language I just said, but I was like, right. how cool you could touch the product. 
Unilever, great company. They make a ton of other things. And I was like this, and it was hustle and bustle. And it was, I met this guy, Doug. I'll never forget Doug Latrenta. He probably would die if he, he, he ever listens to this. I haven't spoken to him in years, but I was like, oh, <laughs> this is it. coupon, Sunday coupon, like game on. And so I think part of the reason I stayed is I think that was like maybe year three, four was because I, I was like, oh, I'm going to do a good job here. I'm going to get a job at Unilever and I'm, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. So it was one of those. But the problem was every time, and I wanted to go into marketing. Like I was like, oh, that is cool. Maybe I can do marketing. But every time I wanted to go leave, it was like, well, we can put you in the accounting department. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want to be in the accounting department. Sorry, Rich. That's like what you do. And I didn't have the wherewithal to know, well, maybe I can maneuver my way into marketing. It was like, nope, accounting. And so I, I hit a wall where I was like, if I want to go do marketing, or if I want to get into consumer products, I got to start thinking of an advanced degree. And that's really what ended up happening. It was like I found the home and then stayed a little to learn. And then I realized, what do I do next? And that was where the idea of business school came up because I couldn't get a marketing job. Even when I applied to companies okay. outside of Unilever, it was accounting. Okay, that, that makes sense. And so even though you you didn't really or didn't enjoy accounting really at all. What were some of the biggest takeaways or maybe like lessons learned from working as, a, as an accountant for all those years? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, number one, first and foremost, you, you need to have the fundamentals of running a business. I mean, there was no doubt you can, you can do anything with an accounting degree. I mean, lemonade stand all the way up. So I think for me, it was just getting that exposure to business, balance sheet, profit and loss statement, just really understanding, you know, <laughs> you know, that you have, you know, you get revenue, you get costs, you get profit. I mean, it sounds crazy, but some of those fundamentals really matter. I also think right. some of the controls in place on how to run a business and how important it is to, you know, even my taxes that I do years later and now, like there was just so many fundamental um, things that I learned about you know, how to run a business or the concept of business and how it all works. So the, I, I, I will be very clear that accounting helped in terms of where I am now, where I've gone since then, but it was just, I didn't, um, I, I didn't want to be ticking and, and, and on a calculator all day in the back room because it's accounting is checking other people's work just to make sure that it's done or that it's right. It's compliant. Like, I didn't know that. And my son today, who's in college, who says, you know, accounting sounds cool. I'm like, you do what you want. You write your own story. But I'm just telling you, let me give you, a, let me paint the picture. Because it's not the real thing. It's, it, it just, it's just not. And, you know, right. Years later, when you're a partner and you're traveling to other clients, but you're, you're in that back room for the first couple of years and, you know, piles like this. And it was just like wild. So I would just, I would just say the fundamentals of business is what that taught me very much. Mm-hmm. Um, that I still to this day, you know, especially as with my own business now, I I, I think back to my Coopers and Librand days, <laughs> or CNL as they called it. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, so, where do you go? End up going to business school? Afterward, so I went to War- I went to Wharton. Um, okay, I still I still uh, I still chuckle when I say that I'm like I can't believe they <laughs> accepted me, but um, yeah, yeah, I, I went to Wharton in '94. Amazing experience. Best thing yeah. I ever did. Best thing I ever did. Um, but yeah, I went to Wharton. Okay. And what did you hope to achieve from from going to business school? Was it was it to make sh- like that pivot to marketing? 
Yeah, it was definitely, I was definitely on a mission when I went to Wharton to um, get this degree, transition into marketing. I'm also going to tell you, as I look back, it, like, it would be so easy to say, oh, amazing, did everything incredibly well. You know, it's two years of pure hell. In fact, it's one year because you <laughs> have to get a job. You got to get a job your following summer. And if you're not in the industry you want to be in, you got to figure out how to maneuver your way in on top of classes that are like six weeks long. If you miss a day, you miss the whole, like you miss three months of work and meeting new people and living off campus. So it was a very whirlwind time. And probably what made it even more challenging for me was that I just finished my cancer treatment literally like four days before I started business school. Oh, wow. And I made that decision not to take a year off. Um, I moved all of my, I moved to Philadelphia to do all my treatment across the street from Wharton at, at Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania. Like I thought ahead, but I think that piece also was just hard. Uh, you know, I, I'm glad I did it, but it was, there was a lot of factors that were playing for me. So I think the most important thing I focused on was I got to get an internship next summer um, in marketing and I'm going to do everything I can to get there. But, but a funny thing did happen along the way you know, they always say, get out of your comfort zone and, you know, do things differently. So one of the things that Wharton does every year is called the Follies, the Wharton Follies. And it's a, it's a show that is written, produced, directed by the students. Um, it's a, it's a full storyline. It's singing, acting, dancing. And I said I was going to go audition. Never sang a moment in my life outside of the shower. Okay. <laughs> I, I loved acting as a kid, uh, you know, did all the plays in, you know, public school, high school, but I was like, okay, this is the big world. And how am I going to do this with business school? I, I just did it. And I went and audition and it's just funny. I think it's the success is the best revenge attitude. I got there and I, I remember at the singing auditions, I was waiting outside and I was listening to some of these people sing and I was like, oh my God, there's no way I'm getting in. And I walked in that room and I just opened that door and I was like, Beyonce out of my way. And I sang, <laughs> I sang an audition song. Um, it, it was, um, it, they gave you a song to sing. And it okay. was from, it was from Little Shop of Horrors, um, Suddenly Seymour, but it was What Am I Here For? They gave you an old song from an old school, from an old Follies production. And mm -hmm. I sang that song like Luciana Pavarotti. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> and I remember leaving the audition there was the last audition. I made it through singing and, and dancing, um, dancing and acting. And I made it, you know, got done with the singing. And the next day they were putting up the, the results and like the 12 people that were in. And, you know, like you know, all these like shows, like High School Musical, you go to the board and literally I'm at the board and all I see, I don't see anything else but my name in like 800 font. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, I just said to myself, holy shit. I made it. I looked again. I turned my head and I was like, no, that can't be. And, and the reason I'm sharing this is because one of the most incredible experiences, I you're on the team. You sing, act, dance. You create the show. And year one, so it was two years. Year one, I was in the show. I, had, I actually had a lead part in the show, which was also great. But then year two, unbeknownst to me, I never thought about this in any way, shape, or form the, the co-directors from the year before came to me and said, would you be interested in directing the show next year? And my first answer was, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. 
I was like, no way. How can I, I don't even, I could barely do, you know, the time wise with everything. And they said, okay, slow down, take a deep breath and think about it. So I came back and I said, I'll do it if I co-direct. And to this day, I just spoke to my co-director yesterday. I, we did it. We said, okay, we're going to go do it. How I was going to get this show directed year two with just this on top of schoolwork and all that. I got to tell you, unbelievable experience, incredible. One of those things like you just do it and you figure it out. But to, to but the the knowledge that I took away on how to direct a show and direct people, and it's almost like running a business and it was like running a company. Right. And it was full show, full storyline. We take Broadway musical shows and we change the lyrics to, you know, reflect business school. We actually do an off-Broadway sh- in New York. We did it. On, there's an off-Broadway theater that we come to New York on believable on top of schoolwork, on top of jobs. But the reason I'm sharing that is because if you asked me before I walked into Wharton a week before finishing cancer treatment that I would sing, act, and dance in a show and then direct, I would have said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and I did it. And yeah. to this day, I look back and that's one of the most important highlights of my B-School career that I that I was able to like pull that off and I don't sing that well I mean I'm not an American Idol singer but but Mm -hmm. I did it and I got on stage and I people saw me and it was like wow and remember I'm now visible I'm really visible like this whole story of just putting myself out there was really um was a highlight of business school and and to this day I I look at it um we did two shows um heaven can wait list was the first year um and then mission improbable Mm. so we take you know it's all spoofs on you know current on things out in the world and mission impossible was a big show um and so yeah it was incredible yeah i'm smiling as i say it because it was a big part of my business school career yeah that sounds like a great experience and and would you say that you're like a naturally outgoing person like is it natural for you to put yourself out there like would you describe yourself as more extroverted or, or introverted yeah, that, I, I really love that question as well because I am, I am a. There's no question if you somebody described me, they would say, "Oh, extroverted, personable, connector, no doubt." But I am also really shy in that, and I, my son's this exact same way. I'm not the person that's going to run in on the first day of school and go, "I'm here," you know. I'm I I I got to you know, cause I grew up invisible. So I have to sort of like, you know, work my way in and get to know me. And once you get to know me and once I feel comfortable game on, um, but it's interesting because I, people are like, there's no way you're, you know, or, or people will say you, you seem so confident. No, there's a lot that goes on before the game, before you hit that button on. And it's the same thing with, with, you know, the people part. And I'm very, um, I think it's also because I, I, I want people to like me. I, I grew up unliked in the, in my mind. I grew up where I didn't matter. And so I feel like you got to get to know a little bit about me or like I got to find people that like me and then boom, once I'm in, go. And yeah. so no doubt I'm extroverted, but I have a lot of introvert traits to get me there. And once I'm there, and once I'm there, I'm in, but it, it's, it's not, um, I don't just walk into some place and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm on the dance floor, you know, being the, you know, the crazy person, not at all, but, but five steps in. Yeah. I'll be at the bar mitzvah on the stage alone dancing. I have no problem. With that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so while you're in business school, do you, um, like, do you take any like marketing or, or branding jobs or internships? 
Yeah, so that was a real um, that was a real story, a real challenge. So, so you 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 interview like two minutes after you get to business school, okay? Um, <laughs> you to get a job next summer, and here you are. I'm in accounting five years. I get to business school, and now I'm supposed to find the marketing job, and it was really hard. I'm not I, I'm not gonna lie. It was incredibly hard. So a lot of what you do is you do a lot of it on your own, and so I was doing an off uh, off the beaten path. Uh, recruiting and then I was doing on campus or you know Wharton recruiting and two things stick out in my mind one is um, I almost I, I made it to the final round of Haynes Hosiery um, which is you know a, a, an, an underwear company and I at the same time that that's happening there's this company Nabisco that's coming on campus and they're hiring one person and, and I was paralleling both because I made it to the interviews at Nabisco and I also made it, and that was on campus and, and Haynes is off campus. I'm doing that on my own. And I, I, number one, I put on pantyhose the day before the interview for Haynes hosiery because I thought in my mind, you have to wear, <laughs> you have to like really experience the product and I don't wear pantyhose, obviously. <laughs> and I finagled the story to them that I was moving to North Carolina. My wife's in med school. I mean, I just was like, I need a job and I'm going to get this job. And while I'm parallel pathing to Nabisco, I make it to final rounds. And remember, they're hiring one person at Nabisco. And I ended up getting both jobs, which was like shocking that I got this Nabisco job. I mean, Nabisco, Oreo cookies, come on, Fig Newtons, Chips Ahoy, Ritz crackers. <laughs> I'm like, holy crap, this is great. Turned down the, the job at uh, Haynes Hosiery. Obviously, my story worked, but like, you know, then I, then I decided I wasn't going to go there. And I went to Nabisco. Um, my first summit. And I got to tell you, like Unilever, like I told you the day that I smelled that laundry detergent, I was like, this is, I, I, I've arrived. I'm home. I've arrived. It was right around the Snackwell's craze, which is a cookie brand that was just on fire. Um, and you may not know it. I'm a lot older. Mm-hmm. On fire. I was there that summer. It was wild. It was dancing. It was just like, oh my God, this is not accounting. <laughs> and um and I spent the summer there and then I ended up going back full time after, you know, I got an offer and at the end of the summer and I ended up going, you know, I spent, went back to school year two and then I ended up going there and it was really, um, I, I, I achieved what I went out for at business school, which is I need to get into the game of marketing. Really not easy, as I said, but um, once, and once you're in, like, it's funny, once you get an internship, then every company wants to talk to you. Like I spent, okay, I spent two months at this company called Nabisco and now all the consumer products companies want to interview me. That's how it works. That mm-hmm. somebody took a chance on you. Let's meet them. Interviewed my second year with all the companies and then decided I'm going back to Nabisco. And um, I spent 12 years there after that. So that's <laughs> talking yeah. about like, but that, that was really the, the, the path and the trajectory to get to Nabisco. Okay. Interesting. And how soon into that first, marketing job at Nabisco did you know that marketing is for you oh five minutes in like there was no (laughs) question like you know it's so this is really it's just such a great um opportunity to look back I'm the guy who can spend four hours in a supermarket like put me in the market and pick me up later I can go up and down every aisle I mean, it has the best of everything. I mean, consumer behavior focus groups. I went to my first focus group. I was like, oh my God, I'm in the back room. I'm listening to these people. Like, where was, where was I? Like accounting? Are you kidding? Like I kept saying accounting. And so it had, 
it just had the best of everything. And I think five minutes in, I knew, you know, and also listen, this goes back to my story when you know who you are. So I'm growing up invisible. I'm not, I don't really matter. And every single event I went to at the, when I worked at Nabisco, I'd be at, let's say a wedding and they're like, you work on Oreo? Oh my God. Let me tell you about Ritz crackers. And oh yeah, we, we thins. And I'm like, Oh, and like everybody wanted to chat. What do you do for a living? Oh, da, da, da. oh I work in marketing at Nabisco. You work in Nabisco? So it was, I look back now and I'm like, oh, I found my place where I can be seen, heard, and valued. And I like it. And I can eat all day. Like th- this is, they call this work? So that was really the, the full moment where I realized, okay, let's work our way up now. I mean, I had a lot of challenges in the game of getting, you know, moving forward, but I found my home. It's a psychology game. It's insights, it's behavior, it's listening to consumers. It's really understanding how to sell a brand. And I was like, oh, beautiful. Thank you, Wharton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. And so now maybe like walk me through the different companies you've worked at um, up until today and what some of the roles are that you've held. It's kind of like high level kind of rundown. Sure, sure. So I spent I spent six years at Nabisco um, and I I worked my way up the marketing rank. You know, you, you start as associate, senior associate, you know, manager, director, you know, VP and so on. So I spent six years at Nabisco and then Kraft Foods bought us, um, which was a big moment, you know, even though it felt like we were merging craft bought us and it was pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I spent another six years there. And so, you know, just moving my way up, I worked on various brands, you know, from, you know, Chips Ahoy all the way up to Planters Peanuts. Um, And then honestly, I would have stayed and I would have been there for probably, you know, forever if it wasn't for the fact that they eliminated all the directors in 2005. And that was a massive blow. I did not see it coming i was like i'm out of job i'm out of work that's crazy I, i'd never mm-hmm. in a million years thought with the warrant mba i would ever be out of work it took a year for me to get a new job many reasons i didn't network well i didn't know how to like sell myself i was like almost paralyzed in a way like oh my god i no no relationships no ne- i didn't do any of that you know while my first 12 years but i ended up at cadbury which I also had a local, I also had a travel restriction. My wife is an OBGYN. I have two kids at this point. I can't technically really travel, but I also can't move. So I'm like, I'm, I'm in the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, even Connecticut was hard, you know, commuting and all that. But I went to Cadbury, which was right in my wheelhouse down the block, you know, took me a year, a little over a year to get there, got to Cadbury and it was an innovation role global Spent a okay. lot of my, I spent a lot of my career in innovation. Um, I, I love creating new products. That was also a niche that I really found that I enjoyed. Got to Cadbury and just realized it was not the right job. You know, it just, it was, I had done a lot of what they asked me to do already, but I, I decided to stay. I, it was about nine months in and I got a call from a friend who had an opportunity at Godiva. And I originally said no to Godiva to this friend because that was a commute. That was going to be a long commute for me. That's a, it was going to be almost a four and a half, five hour daily commute to the city and back. Got home that night. I mentioned to my wife, Sharon, I'm like, Oh yeah, Godiva called. And you know, I turned them down. She's like, why did you turn them down? I was like, cause there's no way I can make this commute work. She's like, no, 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 we'll figure it out. She's like, are you kidding me? It's retail. It's like you're at it. It's moving on from food, drug, mass club, retail. 
no, get on the phone, got on the phone. <laughs> and, and lo and behold, I'm now on my way to Godiva. I spent nine months at Cadbury, went to Godiva. And that was a great move, great move to get another. You got to get more, you got to expose yourself to a lot of channels in marketing. The more channels, the more you understand supermarkets, you know, Target, Walmart, Club, and now this whole boutique retail mall game. And I ended up spending almost seven years at Godiva and I did a ton of innovation um, in what they call the non-gifting sector. So Godiva is predominantly a gifting brand, but they wanted to get into the everyday self-treat snacking game. And that was what I was hired for. Created a whole team and we created a lot of new, really fun, incredible products. Um, And then uh, almost six and a half, seven years in, my position was eliminated. Um, It's a, it's a, um, obviously it's Belgian based um, and they have, uh, they, the global team was moving to Belgium and, and that was also a surprise. My wife had just finished cancer treatment right around Godiva and that Godiva, leaving Godiva was a pivotal moment was where I, where I really realized I got to figure out who I am. I got to figure this whole game out because my wife had just gotten better. I feel like I got a second chance. Like she's going to be finally okay. And, right. and, um, and I, and one of the things that's really important that I think you listeners should really understand is that I did not have the confidence to leave food. Once I started at Nabisco, I felt like I can only do food marketing. That's it. That's all I'm good at. And I couldn't leave the food industry until after Godiva when I started Take, I went to therapy. I started understanding who I was and I started realizing a lot about what I really can do. And so I went, I went to work in a lingerie at a lingerie company after Godiva and that I was their head of marketing and I, and it was e-commerce. I also was incredibly irrelevant after Godiva because I had no e-commerce on my resume. I did not keep up with the industry. I did not keep up with the trends. I thought, oh, I'm the head of marketing for an innovate. I'm in the innovation role at Godiva. I'm safe. I was unsafe. Could not get a job after Godiva until I went and got a mini MBA at Rutgers in digital marketing. I had to get myself relevant pretty damn fast. But I went to the lingerie company because it was e-commerce. It was a whole new industry and I needed to prove to myself that I can do more than just food. And that was where I quit my career. I quit my career at the lingerie company, which we can get into. Right. But but the trajectory for me was, you know, moving myself up the um, uh, the marketing ranks. And the truth is, I didn't want to run a company. I didn't want to be CEO. But the mindset of a Wharton MBA and you're smart and you're personable and oh my God, Rich, you can you know hit grand slams and you can. Do, I was listening to all of that and I was like, but I really want to do that. And I just kept going and going until that moment. At, in the laundry company where I was like, okay, this has got to change. But I just want people to understand that, you know, I was moving up the ranks and really trying to make this work, but, but there was a lot going on inside of me that I wasn't really being who I was. And I was sort of living on this expectation route game. And when my wife got sick and Godiva ended, that's the moment where I realized if you don't figure this out now, you may be alone because my wife, you know, I didn't know if my wife would live and you, you're, you're going to, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> you hit a wall, figure out who you are. Right. Okay. And like, it seems to me that like, as you grow in your career and start to take on, you know, more and more leadership level positions that the importance of having a support system, whether that's family, friends, significant other, coach, therapist, et cetera, also takes on, you know, a, diff- a whole new level of importance. 
have you found that to be the case as you progress in your career? One million plus percent. <laughs> Although here's the thing. Here's the thing. I didn't realize it then as powerfully as I realize it now. Because one of the things about me, once again, success is the best revenge. I'm going to show them I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. I don't need therapy. I know who I am. I didn't realize how just critical people are to the game of of giving you the good, bad, and ugly, pumping you up, believing in you. And once again, my wife gets ill and I'm like, oh my God, I may lose my biggest advocate. This is crazy. How am I going to do this? And so I wish everybody, in, if you're listening and you're in your 20s, get a support system around you now. If you find someone that believes and cares about you, nurture that. Ask somebody to be a mentor. Call them up. We want, I'm 53. We want to help the next generation. Find the person that does. Like, I just didn't realize the power of what a, a team around you that believes in you and also tells you the good, bad, and ugly. Like, we don't see right. what's right in front of our eyes. So I, I can't stress enough how important that is. I didn't actively understand that. So I didn't nurture as much prior as I do now. But as I look back, the people that did believe in me, that, that hung on, stayed with me, I'm so incredibly grateful to them. But today I'm intentional about it now. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It does. It completely does. And so you go to work at the, the lingerie company after Godiva. And I guess, what was it about that experience at the lingerie company that made you say, like, I'm, I'm done with the, the corporate world? So I, I went into this lingerie company knowing that the structure was not going to, I wasn't going to win the game in the end with the structure being the way it was. They um, essentially, you know, I was hired as a CMO and, um, you know, I was the head of marketing. And, you know, one of the things I learned is that you can't really get stuff done as a head of marketing if you don't have the right teams reporting to you. And in the world of e-commerce, there was, you know, we had, a there was a, there was a CRM group and then there was the product group and then there was the the whole internet team and one of the things I knew going in was that we were all equal so there's no way I'm going to get these people to do what I need to get done and I was the last one in um, the person before me not successful ruffled incredible amounts of feathers so here I am thinking great I got to be nice 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 and I'm going to let everybody just be nice and I just started realizing like this is crazy. If I, I felt like last in first out, so I can't open my mouth and I can't really be who I wanted to be. And, 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 um, but at the same time, I was so incredibly grateful because e-com experience lingerie. Wow. I can do this. Like I can, I can build a lingerie brand. I, I don't need to just do food only. So what's important for your listeners is that I went in with certain intentions. I needed to prove that I can do e-commerce, get relevant, there was things that outweighed what I knew the structure was wrong. And, and to be really honest with you, I, I say this all the time. I would not have left the lingerie company if it wasn't for the moment where I was getting a performance review and I, I had no intention. Like it wasn't like I got up in the morning and I said, okay, today I'm going to quit my career. Not at all. I was literally getting a performance review and it was so poor. It was, if you asked me what I thought the review was going to be before I walked in the room, 
I would have been like, I had a great year. I, I clearly did not, I missed the mark, you know, clearly from what the, the report said. And I remember right. even during the meeting, I was like, I think this is the wrong report. I'll never forget it. And he was like, no, it's yours. And Chase, I got up at that moment. I said to myself, okay, you could either take this, totally be fine, move on, or you can drive your own car and take action. And I literally got up and I closed the door and I had a pen in, my, pen in, in the room and I wrote, a, I made a check, like a fake check with my salary on it. And I, I said, I'm giving this back to you. I am, I am resigning. I, I, this is what I want in return. And this is what I'll do to stay. I stayed six extra weeks. Like I went on, uh, I was in mode and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, that's the guy I hired two and a half years ago. And I said, that's the guy that can't do his job here. Like, I don't want to leave. I have to leave. And it was that moment where I realized no idea what I was going to do next. I didn't tell my wife, nobody knew, nobody. But I thought at that moment, boom, because if you come back and complain later on, that's not going to get you anywhere. Like, in other words, like I had to strike while the iron was hot and it was an amazing meeting. And like I said, I left on great terms, never leave a company on bad terms. I worked the deal. I stayed six weeks. They gave me, I gave them, but, but it was that moment where I said, Oh no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to, I'm driving. And, and I had to take the consequences, meaning go build, go do, but it was, it was not a calculated decision. And some people may think that I, I did that on a whim. I, 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 I was, that was my, I was rehearsing for that moment. <laughs> that moment was rehearsed for all the years where I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm driving the car. I'm visible and I'm not going to take this. And it's not right or wrong. It's okay. Thank you. I accept this. Here's what I'm going to do now floored. I mean, I'll never forget the look on his face and I left and I, it's almost three years to the day of this podcast that I left. Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a crazy <laughs> story. Yeah, but by the way, I got home that night and my wife's like, how's your day? My son's leaving for college in two weeks from that moment. And my wife's like, how's your day? And I'm like, I quit my career. And I really thought she was just going to, why I thought this, because my wife is such an incredibly nice, calm woman. She was like, congratulations, go change the world now. It's like, are you kidding me? She's like, absolutely. I'm like, well, it could take me years. It doesn't matter. We'll move. Like, whatever you need, whatever you need, whatever you need. And I'm like, are you serious? She's like, 100%, go find something you love and go change the world. I, blown away. But I shouldn't have been. I should not have been because that's support system. That's right. somebody who wants me to be happy, you know. Um, interesting story because it'll lead to the end of this whole thing. My, I've sat both my kids down. My son's leaving for college in two weeks from that moment. He was first reaction, and he, I love this kid to death. He was like, I'm still going to college, right? Like right away in his mind, it was like, you're paying for college, right? <laughs> and, and I said, absolutely. My daughter, hysterical mess, wanted to give me back all the new clothes she just bought. She's like, I, we don't need to go to private school. What do we need to do? And I remember sitting them both down at that moment. And I was like, okay, first of all, I would never do something that would impact you in a negative way, number one. Number two, watch me. I'm going to show you both. I don't know the message at this point, but watch me get out of this because there is going to be a huge lesson in how you go and conduct your life. 
and I made them under, I, sh I was so clear with them that you do not have to worry. You do not, don't, that is not, you don't need those adult issues on your head. You go to college, you finish high school, let's play. But I remember it was incredible because your kids react very differently. And, and I, you know, my son's leaving. It's, he's embarking on this adventure and he was like, I'm still going. And my daughter was like, what are we going to do now? We have no money. We like, we're, I, I, whatever. Like, and so those are the things that I worked through and I was on a mission to, to get that right for them because I, I didn't want them to worry. And of course they're going to worry their kids, but, but it, it's those things that I saw coming that hit me immediately after I quit that I was like, wow, that reaction was pretty powerful from both of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. And I want to go back here. So when does, when does cancer come into the picture? Was that around business school? Yeah, it was, um, it was two weeks before I got accepted to business school. Two weeks after accepted to business school, I was diagnosed. I'm sorry, two weeks after. Okay. Um, so talk about a real high. I'm leaving the world <laughs> of accounting. Yeah. I got you know, into this incredible school. And then two weeks later, I, um, my world you know, comes really crashing down. Yeah, wow. What type of cancer did you have? I had testicular cancer, which okay. was also, you know, an unusual cancer to get as a young gentleman, but yeah, yeah game changer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, how did you know, like, what, like, when did you know something was wrong? Like, how okay, did I, I, knew, like... I knew you were going to ask me that. And so I'm just going to have to share like sort of a, I mean, it's a little bit of a funny story, but it, I mean, I'm, just, I'm always honest. So. I, I took my, right after I got accepted to Warren, I took my wife, who I was dating at the time. We went on, we went on a trip to Colorado skiing, first time ever in Colorado. And I, you know, I didn't know this, but when you go with the Rockies, like your deodorant bottles, like expand, you know, like everything doesn't, you know, I guess there's the whole air. So yeah. things you know, explode. And, and I literally landed and I got to the hotel and I just was like, I, I'm like, like I had such groin pain and I, remember looking down and I was like, holy crap. Like I literally said to my wife who was in med school at the time, does that happen to, you know, testicles? And she's like, no, you're fine. Stop worrying. Like it was just one of those, like, you know, you know, everybody tells you not to worry. And, and I just felt, I didn't feel right all week. And I, you know, we were skiing a lot and everybody was like, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. And, and got home. And, um, Honestly, I did something that I probably to this day like really am thankful for. I went to the doctor on my own. I, I'm 25, sick, 25 and a half or 26, I think. And I just went to the doctor on my own. I didn't tell anyone because I just didn't feel right. Something was not right. And sure enough, I went and, and you know, you can, I'm, I can read faces. Um, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm insightful and I can just tell the minute the radiation tech did the sonogram, I could tell the look on her face, this isn't good. And my world changed in that three days later when I got the results, the, my, I, I knew nothing about this cancer. I thought I was dead. I'm done. I, I, yeah. So it literally happened that way. I got to Colorado, thought something was wrong. People told me I was crazy. I called, I remember calling my wife's dad and I was like, I just, they're fine. Relax. You're graduating. You know, you're, you're, you're leaving your job. You're graduating a whole new, you know, you, uh, your profession, you're moving to, and I was like, nope. And I did it on my own. And I'm really happy I did because I caught it. We caught it early enough, but I had, I let it go. I could have been a Lance Armstrong and, you know, and right. had it really spread. So that, that's, that's just the bare bones story of how it happened. 
Wow. So how long did you battle it for? Um, I, I would say I battled it for about six months. So right after I got diagnosed, I was in New York. I, I left. I took a leave of absence from my job. They did not know I was going to business school. Took a leave of absence because I needed my health insurance to follow through. And my, my wife's dad is a doctor. Um, you know, to this day, I, like I adore this man. Um, he really saved my life. And he literally said, pack your bags. I'm coming to get you and you're moving to Philadelphia. Because I had an HMO, which is a which was a really cheap at the time a cheap medical plan, and the what was covered was not anything that he was was approving. Um, I needed certain types of treatment, and and I'm also like at this point I'm like whoever tells me to do what I'm doing, and he swooped me in, and I went to Chop right across the street from Wharton. Um, I did my surgery in New York. I got I had. Um, the testicle removed, it's called an orchiectomy. Um, but the treatment was a whole different game and storing sperm and just like, you know, thinking about all those precautions and they, he took it and I moved in with my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife. She was in med school. I moved into her place for about six months and literally like a week before school started, I was done. I walked every day to get treatment. I walked back. It was, it was not fun. Um, I, I, I had my abdomen radiated and I thought for two minutes a day, that's not going to be a big deal. It was a huge deal. I mean, it was hard to do, you know, digesting food. And mm -hmm. I didn't think that that you can be so poisonous. Um, but I would say six months, but it was a full year before I really felt myself, you know, in school, like, you, you know, it's, it's sort of like, I guess, I mean, I never had a baby, but like, you, you just don't get up one morning and you're done. So it was probably a good year and six months, but it was six months. And then every three months after the treatment, while I was in B school, getting tested and, you know, going to the hospital and just the fear and all that, like there was a lot of psychology around that as well. And just, is it going to come back and it's going to, you know, I'm going to be fine. I don't feel well, you know, um, but I would say six months and then a good year after that to like really feel myself. Wow. Okay. And how, how did your cancer diagnosis and kind of that overall journey change your perspective on just life? Oh, it, it, it was, it, it so changed my perspective. I think that the one thing it really did for me, and I look back today because I'm, you know, in a whole new game, mm -hmm. it was, I just kept thinking about my legacy. Like I kept thinking of two things, if I'm really very honest. One is, am I going to be able to have children? Like I, despite, you know, sort of the childhood I had or growing up in a home that was very disconnected, I can't wait to have kids. And is that going to be a problem? So that was in the back of my head. But number two, it was this legacy. Like how am I, if this ends, like this is it, like how, who's going to remember me? Who's going to like, and, and I think about it and I've thought about it to that day of this idea of you know, most people don't think about their legacy until, you know, maybe they have this moment and it's later on in life. But for me, it was like, oh my God, this, this, you know, I need to make sure that I'm remembered. And if I can have kids, that'll be great because they'll continue the legacy and, and so on. So it changed my perspective just on, I knew life was short, but I didn't realize how short it was. I didn't realize that you could snap your fingers one day like I did. And my whole game changed. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just you know, you went from happy, happy, everything's great to, am I going to live? How am I getting through this? You know, is my, is my girlfriend going to leave? I mean, I'm married to the, to her today, 24 years later. Let me tell you something. 
I'm not sure I would have stayed. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I right. you know, I, I didn't know if I can have kids. And I remember the conversation with her and she's like, whatever, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it. And to this day, I'm like, how did I get so lucky to find someone that truly cared about what was going on inside of me? And like, I didn't know it then. I didn't, I wasn't mature enough to really understand that. But I, I, I now look back and I'm like, wow. And obviously my wife had cancer many years later, but like, that that was courage on her part to like we're gonna get through this and and obviously i had a very good cancer i mean they always say you know that's the one you want to get as crazy as that sounds because it is curable you you know and that was that was it so it was the perspective and the legacy and just you know trying to realize that gotta save every moment Mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure and so when and so your wife had to battle cancer too right yeah, that that was um, that was crazy. So 17 years after I am diagnosed and got through, um, my wife's an OBGYN, detects it every day. Um, that's one of the main things she does, you know, in addition to delivering babies. And um, I have a nine-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son at this point. And my, my son is six months away from his bar mitzvah. And my wife says to me one morning, I just got home from a business trip. She's like, oh, I'm going for a mammogram today. They think they saw something. And my wife is not an alarmist. In fact, she's like the most easygoing person. And I'm like, excuse me? She's like, yeah, it's probably no big deal. And I'm like, no, I'm going with you. Yeah, I'm going. Like, there's no way I'm not, you know, going. I was like a mess already. (laughs) And Chase, I remember saying to her on the way there, I don't want to know if it's it's cancer. I don't want to know today. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I know you doctors at the hospital, you know, everyone, they're going to tell you, you you get special treatment. Like it's a whole different game. And she's like, no, no, that's not how it works. We're going to find out. I said, okay, (laughs) I got to tell you five minutes in the room. I'll never forget it. Her, um, her, the the oncologist walked in or the breast surgeon walked in friends of ours. And she took one look and she was like, I just can tell on her face. And I'm thinking at that point, all right, we caught it. No big deal. It's going to be nothing. We're going to swoop it up and it's going to be called a day and move on. And three days later, when we found out how big this tumor was, and we thought, I just was like, what? And she sat me down, my wife, and she's like, I, we don't know what's going to happen, but you got to get real. And Because I, I was in another world. I was like a diva. I was traveling. I was just, I don't, I'm like, what do you mean, get real? She's like, I don't know where this is going to go. This is not a stage one. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Most people when they're young, and women, she was 43. It's an aggressive cancer most times. You don't usually wake up with cancer at that age in breast right. cancer. And fast forward, not aggressive, amazing. Like, I mean, it was, it was big and it was far along. Um, it was advanced, but, but it was not one of those cancers where we can't fight it. And um, I would probably say a good year and a half, two years into this game, she, you know, she went through, I mean, I, I went through nothing compared to my wife. I want to be clear about that. My wife went through chemo, radiation, double mastectomy. I mean, it was, it was not fun. Um, I have, you know, we had to postpone my son's bar mitzvah. My daughter at nine years old, who is so perceptive, was, um, it really formed her character today. I'll never forget that we told them, we were honest with them, we did not sugarcoat, we did, we were always treated them, you know, with, with, uh, with, with dignity in terms of like, we're not going to lie to them. I remember the moment my daughter asked, I'll never forget it. I was putting her to bed, I was reading her a story, she was like, is mommy going to die? I'll never forget it. And I 
And I remember that moment I said, Rich, if you, the answer you give her is going to set the tone for that future relationship. It just is. And I said, Samantha, I don't know, but I'm going to make a deal with you. I made a deal with her in that room. I'll never forget it. I said, I'm going to give you a thumbs up. Anytime you ask, if I give you a thumbs up, mom's great. When I find out something that, that is not good, I'm going to give you a thumbs down. And that's when we're going to worry. And we're not going to worry about this as long as you get that thumbs up. And she was leaving for sleepaway camp like two weeks later. We, we did a whole shaving of her, my wife's head as a family. My kids got into it. We, like we were told, you know, we were advised on things like that. And then my daughter got on the bus. She looked at me and I, I'll never forget through the window. I just gave her a thumbs up and I said, cause she said, is mommy going to be here on visiting day? I go, that I knew. I knew there was no doubt my wife was going to, you know, if anything was going to pass in three weeks. And we showed up on visiting day and nine years later, she's doing amazing, amazing. And every day I worry, we worry every moment. There's no question it doesn't change. But, um, but I, I did, I only asked for one thing. One thing when I prayed was that we get my, my wife through high school because I didn't want my daughter. I, I felt this way about my son, but he was 12. I didn't want my daughter to not remember her mom. I was like, if something doesn't happen, if something happens to my wife, no problem. I understand we're all going to die in the end, but get my wife through high school. And my daughter's a sophomore in college right now. So um, big moment awesome. for me, Chase. Changed mm-hmm. my whole life. Changed yeah. the whole perspective of my life when my wife got sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. What, um, how, many, how many thumbs down do you, do you remember that? I, none. I never had to give a thumbs down because every single treatment, never at all. Seriously. I mean, that's to be like, and I took a big risk. Whew, did I take a risk? But, but think about it. If I said everything's going to be great, 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 and then she died, my daughter would have, she would grow up with some trust issues. Like, I don't trust you. And, and we have an amazing relationship because I was always honest with her. And people advised us not to say anything. They, they, we were not advised to be honest. And I said, no way, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But I, did, I thought I did it, you know, in a, in, a, in a way that was age appropriate. You know, we used right. to do a lot of this, a lot of this. Mom went in for surgery. Yep, we're going to do fine. You know, I never had to do a thumbs down because we never got to a point where we thought, you know, it was going to be that bad. And, um, and, you know, yeah, I have to say it was, um, I still can't believe that this whole thing happened. Like you detect breast cancer every day and you end up getting it and getting it in a way that is so far along that we, none of us notice this. This is how crazy our lives are. We're running and doing, especially as moms and full-time, my wife has a full-time practice. I'm working, my kids are growing up. Like to not stop that was a game changer. My wife, you know, slowed down her office, you know, to this day, she, you know, she, she's still busy, but like, it was like, oh my God, how can we be that absent of our bodies? And, and so, yeah, no, I never had to do a thumbs down and hopefully I never will. I really, you know, every, every year she gets a checkup, I'm always gulping, you know, hoping right. that it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so with both of you now, you know, having cancer and, you know, beat it, how do you think that's influenced you as parents? Oh my God, this is, well, I, I, I can pretty much admit this now. I probably didn't have the language when my wife was going through this, but I, I had a nervous breakdown. There's no doubt. I had a breakdown, no question. Um, 
I never understood the word nervous breakdown. Like you don't just become erratic. Like I wasn't like out there with a shaved head, but I, <laughs> I, I, I went into therapy. I had to go to therapy. I had to just surrender. I had to surrender and say, okay, here's the thing. Chase just really keeping it real. It, that moment my wife got sick was when I realized I am so dependent on her that if she goes, I'm done. How am I raising my kids alone? How am I going to do this? How am I going to have a job and a family? I am not as connected to my children as I could be, meaning I was there totally, but I was in another world. I was the guy at the basketball game where my daughter didn't get the shot in and I was like, great shot. She's like, I didn't get it in. I was on my Blackberry. Like I was there, but I wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I had to get real, real with myself. But number two, I had to learn how to rely on Rich and how to get comfortable with Rich. And, I, and, and so that was number one. Number two is parents. I was not going to repeat what my parents did. I was going to be present for my kids. I was going to let them know they were seen, heard, and valued. I was going to let them know they were loved and safe. And I was going to be a part of their lives. They didn't ask to come in the world. We brought them in. And the thing that's so important is that you got to earn your children's like. Like, I, I want to say that again. You got to earn your children's like. They love you and they will always love you, but they don't have to come back when they leave the school. No, but there's no requirement that says you must come back. I wanted them to want to come back. And yeah, we've had our moments and every family goes through trials and tribulations, but I was so intentional about being present for my kids and making sure that they understood that we are, we, we put you first. We are going to ensure, number one, my wife and I were always aligned from day one when we met. Education was first. Everything goes to our kids. We're going to make sure that they are functional in the world and they're good people. And talk about support system. You have to be that support system for your kids. And that's why they went to private school. That's why every dollar went to education where they are right now. That's how we chose to spend our income. I mean, it's not right or wrong. It's how we chose. But it was so important for my children, for my kids to feel loved, safe, and valued. And we treated them like humans. And always, we always treated them like young adults. They make their decisions. We talked about it. Every action has a consequence. It was, um, it was a game. In some ways, I'm so blessed that my wife and I got sick. So blessed. Because you can't do this in your 50s, 60s, and 70s. It doesn't, when they're formed and those formative years of growing up, they are who they are. The right. behavior part to change. You're not going to get to 15, 16 and go, oh, I think I'm going to spend time with my kids and change they, who they are, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And I think that therapy really taught me that you got to walk the talk. And if you want to, you got to go do what you say you're going to do. And so I slowed down work. You know, I was much more present. Um, you know, just we moved to get closer to school for my kids so that they didn't have to commute as much. We can have time saved. Like there was just a lot of turmoil changes that happen, but I found who I was. And that was the big win because I say this all the time and I don't mean this, but I, I do. If something happens to my wife, while it's going to be devastating, I know I'm going to be okay now. I know I can do this on my own. Not fun, but I, I couldn't say that nine years ago when my wife got sick because I was like, I grew up invisible. So I'm dependent on everyone else. I know I, I'm, I, and she was the biggest supporter and now you're going to be gone. No way that doesn't work. But now I'm okay with that. And I know how to stand up for myself and be, I like myself and I learned how to learn that. And that is not an easy thing to do. Right. Right. 
Okay. And so let's fast forward to today now, present day. So what is it yeah. that you do today? Like what's your current venture and all of that? <laughs> oh boy. That this is where the, you know, the game really changes. So I left my career, as I said, at the lingerie company. I had no idea what I was going to do next. Um, I knew one thing for sure, Chase. I wasn't going back to corporate America. Done. Done. Mm-hmm. Like Done, there was yeah. no way. Yeah, hundred percent. I I didn't I didn't feel like I would miss it. I felt like it was the moment to. I was fifty. When that you hit that number, the, the day after, I I I can't explain it. Your whole mind changes, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, I'm going downhill. I'm not uphill anymore. I'm downhill. Okay, what do I do? And so when I quit my career, I sat home. Never forget it. I was like, what am I going to do next? Really thought through and reached out to mentors, friends. You know, I was in therapy at the time. I still am. And, um, and I wanted to change lives. It was just that simple. Like I knew what I wanted to do, but I'm like, how am I going to do that? And I honestly wanted to use motivational speaking to do it. I knew it was time to get on stage. It was time to speak. I wanted to be a talk show host as a kid. That was always something I wanted to do. I knew the venue I wanted to do. And I thought that I would just go tell my story. Like, I have a great story, cancer, family. The, I just thought, just get on stage and talk about that. So I joined a motivational speaking school, okay? Like shortly after I quit online. And the first thing you learn, module one, nobody gives a shit about your story unless there's something in it for them. And I thought, of course, I'm a brand guy. Duh, like you don't see it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, now what am I going to do? Because I don't, like, no one's going to care about my story unless something's in it for them. And I'll never forget the night I was sleeping or I was sort of sleeping. We don't sleep, my wife and I, because she's got a beeper all the time and delivering babies. And it's always right. been that way for our marriage. And got up in the middle of the night and I nudged her and I'm like, oh my God, I think I have my idea. I, I just, I, I just thought this idea in my head. And, and it was two years before that night, or yeah, two years. I told you my son was in college. He was leaving for college right after I quit. So he's in college. And I, I remembered a conversation I had with him when I was preparing him for alumni interviews. He came to me and said, I have a couple of alumni interviews for the colleges I'm applying to. Can you help me? And I'm like, of course, brand marketing is what I do. And so I asked him one simple question that night and, it was, and that in the kitchen. And it was, tell me about yourself. And that is the hardest question to answer. And the reason it's hard is because where do I begin? What do I say? And most people, Chase, what do you think most people's first answer is when you say to someone, tell me about yourself? What do you think is the first thing they say? What do you think? General, most people will tell you the first answer is what? I'm not sure. I would say they like they'd start like going like where they grew up and like go through okay. like, kind of like their story. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, you're you're much smarter and much deeper it's because you have a podcast. <laughs> Most people will tell you what they do. I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm an accountant, I'm a coach, I'm a and all he was telling me that answer was what he did. I'm a high school senior, I play video games, I study. He had no idea who he was. No idea. And it was that moment when I realized at the kitchen that That's what I did for brands for 25 years. I would craft an identity for a brand using one word. And the one word is who that brand is. Who are you at your core? And it's the one thing the brand sells because people don't buy products. They buy core value. They don't, you're not buying Oreos. You're buying Oreos core value. And so at the kitchen, I said to him, 
if you want to work with me, I'm going to, let's figure out your one word. And he looked at me like I was crazy. I think he was sorry that I asked. I always say that. And we figured out his one word and his one word is perseverance that his core value, what he sells brands give away their core value. This is what I teach people. You got to think like a brand people. You give away one core value. You got to be known for something, one thing. And so he takes this word perseverance, writes this incredible essay for college, personal statement about how he lives his core value of perseverance, gave an incredible campfire story about at Sleepaway Camp, and he gets into Cornell. And in bed that night, right after I quit my career, I realized, why don't I go and transform a million lives one word at a time? I, I literally said that. Mm-hmm. Why I figure out how to help people discover their core value so that when they build their brand identity, you have seven seconds to make a first impression in that elevator. Maybe they could communicate what they're selling, whether it's for a job, you, you get a paycheck, I give you my core value. You apply in a college, you want me to come to your campus, you give me a degree, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to bring. I'm going to be the kid who never gives up. I'm going to be the kid who perseveres. And I thought about that. And, and my wife's like, I think you're onto something. And I have to tell you, I wanted everyone to say no. Rich, that's stupid. That's ridiculous. Go get a real job. Like, I just wanted people and I called mentors back and my therapist and friends and they were like, you may be onto something. And it was that moment where I thought, I'm a catalyst. I knew what my one word was. What I knew what my one word was. That's why I hated accounting. That's why all the jobs I was successful in, the ones that I was able to disrupt, change the game, launch right. new products. And I said, I think I have an idea here. And the truth is, I then decided I'm going to go and make it happen. And that is the moment. It was December of 17 when I said to myself, I'm going to hire a team. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to get on stages. I'm going to figure out how to give it away for free. That is the number one thing I did that I think is the most important thing that anybody listening to this podcast episode. If you want to go out and you want to make a name for yourself, go give it away. Because this is what I say to everyone. You have to think like a brand. If you go to Costco, I call it the Costco strategy. Everybody eats up and down the aisle at Costco. They're not feeding you, Chase, because they want to give you lunch. They want you to buy the product that you just put in your mouth. And that is exactly what, how I built brands in my career. So if you go sample and people start hearing what you have to say, now my story makes sense. Now I go out and say to people, why don't you discover who you are? Because once I knew I was a catalyst, that's one of the reasons I didn't know it at the time, but I quit my career because catalysts do quit on the spot. I'm a disruptor. I don't need to ask a million people. I did it at the moment because that, that's the way that, that I work is my brain. Right. And, and so literally what I do is I help people discover who they are in one word, their core value, and then build their identity around it. Okay. And whether you're in high school trying to get into college, like my son, whether you're in college trying to get that first seven seconds of that interview started and mostly I work with young entrepreneurs because what I've also learned through my career and all the brands I worked on is that the entrepreneur is the brand. Okay. People buy human connection. 
if you are an entrepreneur that is starting a venture, you are the brand. Your product is not the brand. You use your product to drive your brand. Your brand is your core value. So I help entrepreneurs take this core value and infuse it as the identity of their business venture so they sell themselves and their venture at the same time. And the example I give to every listener on, on the interviews that I talk on podcast is, is Starbucks. Beautiful example. Howard Schultz, all about community. If you read his right. story, all about growing up poor, dad never had the type of job that he wished that his father would have. His father lost his job, no comp, workers' comp, no income, no insurance, nothing. Howard Schultz said, I'm going to create a company that everybody feels a part of the community. I build cafes. People go to Starbucks. You're not paying for the coffee. You're not paying $7 for that latte. You paid for the chairs, the aroma, the cushy seats, the barista, the table. You spent your whole day there studying. You paid for that. And what you paid for was the community, the people around you. You meet friends at, they call it the third office, and it's meant that way. You meet people at Starbucks for the afternoon, you paid for that. You didn't pay for the coffee. And so I have, over the three, two and a half years that I've been really nurturing this idea that I have, I really, up until COVID, traveled the country speaking, and then I would meet people after I'm off the stage, and I would, people would start working with me. And a lot of entrepreneurs, I help build their brand foundation around them. Same thing with college, same thing with high school. But the real essence of what I do, and you know, it's, you always want to be simple in how you explain to people, you know, anybody that's listening, if you really want to be a, a strong brand, what can you say to someone to really understand what you do? And I've tested this on stage because part of, it, part of the game of building a brand is just get out there and move and improve. And what I've learned is the following, the essence of what I do. And it simply is what you do is not who you are, but who you are should drive what you do. I want to say that again. What you do is not who you are, but who you are should drive what you do. And what's so full circle for me is that I let my identity be caught up in what I did and being a survivor. I didn't know better. It's not right or wrong, but when you hit the wall, you lose a job, you get cancer, you lose a loved one, and you're in that tumultuous moment of like, where is my life going? It's because you're letting what you do drive who you are. And if you do it the other way, you can easily pivot and build your brand on your core value, not on your product. And so I now am a catalyst and I am doing who I am now. I am out disrupting the way people think. I, all I do is disrupt the way you think about yourself. So you never answer the question, tell me about yourself by starting with what you do. I don't care what you do. You could stay home and never work, but your outside activities, your philanthropy, whatever, your, your athletics, your leisure activities, this core value is through everything you do. I am a catalyst in everything I do. I don't just wake up and go to, be a, go to work and be a catalyst. I am a catalyst in how I design our, our activities, the way I think, the way I coach my kids, it, that's the, the win. And I have to be really frank, I didn't know if this would take off. I have no idea where I'm going with this. But what I do know is when you strike a nerve, which is what I've been doing, and people start reaching out to you because I've given it away, and those people I've given it to are telling other people, 
now I've got people calling because it's a contagious thing. What is my one word? I, maybe I should know my one word. All three of those people know their one word. I don't know mine. And that, that's the, the beauty of what I'm trying to do. And it's hard. I am not on a private jet yet. I am not sitting next to Beyonce by any stretch of the imagination. But you asked me this question, like, what did cancer teach me? Now I'm building a legacy. Now right. I'm able to really impact. I've seen people cry when I'm done with them because they can't believe that in one word they could be seen, heard, valued, confident. Like we're, we're all, we all have value in this world. We don't need a title and a school and a town to define our, our existence. We have value, but if you know that value and you can go to a company and be um, beneficial and advantageous to them, tell them that then. So they put you in the right role as opposed to, they're just going to put you wherever they need, wherever there's a need. But if you can direct that, you, your game is so much stronger. And that's what I'm doing right now. And I'm, and, and I'm directing my own destiny. And I, I think I remember in a couple of minutes ago where I said to my, remember I said to my kids, watch me. Right. That was what I, that was what I wanted them to understand. And let me tell you, the challenge that I have is I got to let my kids write their own story because who they are drives what they do. And, and that is the message I'm teaching them. And when they turn to me and they say, you know, dad, we're really proud of you. You're, you really are showing us, they say this all the time. You're really showing us what hard work really does and how it pays off and how, how hard you're working to try to help people win. That was the reason I walked away. I didn't know it then Chase, but I now know it. And that, that, that's all I needed was my kids and my wife to turn to me and say, just change the world. And when you're done, hopefully that's how you'll be remembered. And I didn't want to be remembered for Oreos and Godiva anymore. I loved it, loved it. But I didn't want to be remembered for that. I wanted to be remembered for people that got, stood up and said, you know what, this guy disrupted the way I think and made me understand that I have value. We're done. Conversation over. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's great. And I love, I love that idea of allowing who you are drives what you do instead of what you do drives who you are. Um, and I mentioned this probably a couple times now on the podcast already in prior episodes, how in my previous job in, in private equity that I let what I did drive who I was or who I, I am. I and then, then I left that and I was like, oh, who am I now? <laughs> right. But, but Chase, I did the same thing. Accounting, accounting, everybody's, and everybody says, oh, great. He's so smart. He went to Wharton. Boo, he's got a great job. I got to put my pants on every morning and make that commute. I got to sit in the office. It's all fun and games until the day you got to start doing it. And so, and I speak to so many people that say to me, this is what they say. Oh, I can't, I can't write. My parents will kill me. I can't write. You can't make a living writing. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Let me call JK Rowling. Hold on. Like, are you kidding me? Well, she it took her 85 years to get that. Yeah. And that's what building a brand is about. It takes, it's a marathon. If you're looking for the quick win, ladies and gentlemen, then, then I'm not your guy. Meaning like that is not how brands are built and that is not how long-term games are played. And so this generation under me that I'm trying to really impact you got to work no matter what you do. Okay? Right. Like, and, and by the way, if you get a job in corporate America, I support you. I applaud you, but you're still going to work hard. You're still going to travel. You're still going to get in on that plane. Nothing is handed to you. 
And if you can do it at a younger age and say, I'm going to take those next 10 years and I'm going to figure out how to be a good writer because I am X and I'm going to let writing drive that, then 10 years from now, you may not have the Hamptons and all the things you wanted in those 10 years, but 10 years later, your friends are going to hit that wall and not have done the work and you're going to be sitting pretty. So do the work now. I tell my yeah. kids this now. Do not wait until the cancer like I did and the, and the job losses, three of them, and the therapy that I had to go do. Don't do it now. You do it now and build your plan and build your trajectory so that when you get to 53 my age, you could be happy. It's about being happy. It is not about how much money you have. It is not about the title. I had all of that caught up until I realized I've never been happier and I make so much less money now, but I'm building a big idea. Mm -hmm. I'm building an idea. And it's the happiness that comes before the money. It's engaging with people first and selling second. It's building those connections first and the support system. You, you will make it so much further. And that's what I do on stage or virtually now or try to. Right, right. Yeah. That's funny. You mentioned Starbucks too. Literally yesterday I interviewed someone who worked at Starbucks for uh, 27 years and went from barista to like global VP of operations at the company. And wow. she's always talking about like the community and the culture and really value their people there. So it's just funny how that came up again today. Yeah. I mean, I, I study brands and, and that's an entrepreneur takes that core value. He, I'm not saying he intentionally knew what he was doing Like he said, Oh, I'm going to do that. But when you look back now, you can be intentional about what he did because you're learning from the people that are, you know, ahead of you. And I think Spanx has done that well. I think Steve Jobs, brilliant in doing that. Apple is all about simplicity. He's a simple guy. Even down to his wardrobe on stage, it was intentional. That wardrobe was intentional. He's a simple guy. He says it all the time. So it, that's what I teach people because that is where I can impact the next generation. I could be the one that helps you with marketing and branding because you're young. You could start a business at any age. We couldn't start businesses in the 80s. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have digital. You do. The difference is you don't know how to build the brand. I do. Let's get married. Let's work together. Right. That's the beauty of passing down the mentorship. And, and that's why I want people to go find a mentor that's older because we want to help. We, it's a joy, at least I feel to be a part of that next generation and helping them get there quicker, which is really my purpose. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. And then getting to these last handful of questions here, what's one big goal, you know, personal business, athletic, et cetera, um, that you would love to accomplish over the next few years? I really thought about this question, Chase, you know, um, there, there is so many, but I, I'm going to say the one that, that first came to my mind because I think it's the most important or the, you know, the, you should always say what you, know, what, what you thought about first. Um, I want to write a book. I, I, okay. I, I, am not, I am not a writer, but I, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to say, you know, here I am saying, you know, I'm not a writer and then people are like, don't be negative. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not. Um, writing is not my gig. And, um, but I need to, I need to, tell my story and I need to educate more people and, and drive this core value one word idea. So um, whether I have somebody help me do it, whether it, I have no idea, but there's definitely, um, there's a book in the game and I have to, I just launched a podcast and I think the next thing is going to be, okay, how do I really hunker down and, um, and put 
this knowledge out in a way where I can literally, it's all about helping people. I, I just, I want a million people to know who they are because it changed my life. And so it's a book, pretty much a book. Okay. Awesome. And what does your daily routine look like these days? <sighs> That's such a generational thing. That you, you know, my, my, my kids, Gen Z, millennial, um, I, 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 I definitely have a routine. I don't know if it's, you know, like, I don't know if I'm intentional about it, but, um, you know, I get up in the morning. So I, I, I'm a late, I'm an, I'm a night owl. So I go to bed at like one or two in the morning. Okay. okay. So I get up, I try to, I know now how critical sleep is. And so I try to get at least seven hours. So let's say I get up at 9am. Okay. Um, my morning does not begin without a cup of coffee. I will be very clear. If there's no coffee, when I arrive somewhere, there's nothing's happening until you give me that coffee. <laughs> I don't, it's just, I'm honest about it. Like it's that moment where I just need that hit. Um, I usually spend the mornings. I don't take calls in the morning because I usually do my coaching consulting work. Um, I, I'll do some social media mornings are really for me to like, you know, build my brand and my business. And then in the afternoon, I do a lot of free calls. I give out a link to every, every time I'm on stage and every time I speak to someone, I'll even give it at the end here. I give a free link. I do a free hour call to anybody that wants to call me, talk to me. It's life happens in conversation. So my afternoon is all through calls. I could do anywhere from one to 10 calls in the afternoon. And so once I'm done, you know, part of the part of being home and being an entrepreneur is I can work around the clock if I really want to. Um, you know, there's, it's my business. It's whatever I do, I win. Um, but I, you know, once I'm done with calls, I try really intentionally, <clears throat> especially with COVID. I had dinner with my kids a lot when they were home from college. And I just, the power of that connection is something I really am blessed with. And I realize that's a silver lining out of this whole pandemic. So I try to spend time with my wife, you know, through dinner, whether, you know, we're just eating and talking and just how was your day? My wife's an OBGYN and so on. Um, I also, at night, I'm very, very intentional about 30 minutes on my Peloton. Like it could be midnight, I'm on my Peloton. If I am not home and there's no Peloton, I'm not on my Peloton. But I, I made that decision because consistency breeds credibility. And I felt like, you know, if you, if you work out one day for three hours, you're not going to be as, it's not going to be as consistent as right. the same day. So <clears throat> I do 30 minutes on my Peloton, no matter what, before bed. Um, and then the reason I'm a night owl is because I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of brand studying. Um, I will write. Um, I'm thinking about my next day. I do a gratitude journal at the end of the night with a friend. I do three things I'm grateful for before I go to bed, which is crazy as this sounds. That's like a stressor <laughs> because I committed to my friend. We're going to do it. And we've been doing it for a year and I do it. It could be simple things, but, and then when I go to bed at night, honestly, I'm not a good sleeper. I'm, I'm always thinking I'm always before bed while I'm, my eyes are closed. I'm thinking about life and my kids and how can I be better? Or like, what can I do to continue this journey? So, um, you know, I eat well. I'm, I'm a very good eater in the sense that I don't eat bad. I'm not saying I, I have all these positives that I add to my body, but I'm, I'm, I'm a, I, I eat well. I exercise. I understand that life is genetic, that what's going to happen is going to happen. But if I can help aid in some of that, I'm going to do it the best I can. Um, and so, you know, I, I had weight issues as a kid, so I'm very careful about what I eat. Um, but um, I'd say, yeah, I mean, I definitely have, I mean, that's sort of my routine and I definitely, right. um, 
I, I work a lot. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I have to build, I have a million lives to hit. I don't have a lot of time and I don't mean that negatively, but I'm 53. And so, um, but, but in good ways I'm working, like I'll, I'm thinking about my podcast and I'm thinking about the post that I'm going to do. It's, it's things like I do a lot of, I do a lot in a day. I'm a left to right guy where I'll do 12 things in one day and I'll do each of them in increments. And at the end, I've done them all. I'm not one to do one only finish and move on. That's not how my brain works. So I feel more fulfilled if I'm, if I know the eight or 10 things I'm, I have to get done and I just move my way around in my office. That's how I feel fulfilled at the end of the day. And, you know, and I also do a lot of house stuff. Like, you know, I have to, you know, do the laundry. Like my wife and I are 50-50. So there's a lot of that. And I talk to my kids a lot. I coach my kids a lot, by the way. I'm a coach, not a parent anymore. And I know that may sound weird to people, but my son's graduating college. He's a senior. I'm a coach. So when they call me, I take the call and I try my best to like be there for them. And that's something that I, I'm very engaged in, you know, whether it's interviewing resumes, my daughter wants to go to med school. I spend a lot of time with them as a coach because I, I can't, I have to let them write their story, but they're reaching out for guidance and it's, it's being a guide, not, you know, saying no or yes. So I, I spend right. a lot of time in my routine on that. We're very connected to our kids. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, no, that was a good, that was a good answer. <laughs> um, and so, as is the name of the podcast, the Driving Force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? By the way, I love that question. And I love the name of your podcast. I just want to say, no, I really do. It's just so brilliant. Um, I, I'm, I'm very simple. My driving force is my kids. They're my kids. I, um, I really, you know, this is going to sound really philosophical and maybe you know, your listeners will understand this. I grew up invisible. And so I don't understand why people ever listen to me. Like I, in my head, that limiting belief of like, why do you care what I have to say? I just, I, I, I live with that a lot. And obviously through therapy, I'm still doing, a, I still, you know, I'm launching a podcast, I'm speaking, like I'm out there. And so for my kids, it's, I always wonder what they're going to say about me when I die. I really think about that a lot. Um, my daughter is very expressive during, you know, Father's Day, birthdays, 100%. I get how she feels. My son's not that type of kid. And I have to accept that. And I have. He's more like my wife. And I always say to him, are you going to talk about me when I die? And he's like, Dad, what? yes. And I'm like, what are you going to say? <laughs> you know? And the only reason I say that is because I want, I want my kids to be proud of me. I want them to... I want them to know that I, that I walked the talk, like let who you are drive what you do and that I let them write their own story and that I was there for them. And as crazy as it sounds, you know, I don't want the accolade at my, at my eulogy. I don't want, don't talk about the brands I worked on. This is going to sound crazy, Jason. I say it all the time and people that know me well know this. I want everyone to come to my funeral with their one word on their shirt. Like I did. Because, and I want my kids to as well. And, I, and the reason is because I left, I came in invisible and I found my visibility, helped my son do it. And now I'm helping others. And so my driving force is really that, my, that people say to my kids and, and my kids as well, like, your dad was a good guy. I just want to be a good guy. That's it. I don't need any of that other crap. I love, you know, it's nice to have a nice life. And don't get me wrong. We have one but I just want people to say he really helped me win. 
and I'm doing it now. Like that's the part of the, that's the point of why I want listeners, why your listeners that are listening to this, I want them to understand you got to go out and drive your own force, like go and do it. Like you stop talking and start walking. And now that I'm doing it and I'm seeing the reaction and I'm seeing people call me and say, you know, you really have changed the way I think and you really are a catalyst because that's my one word. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so cool. And, and that's what I want. My, I want my kids to hear that. And then I want my kids to say, yeah, he helped me as well. He really helped me discover who I was. My son's a perseverer and my daughter's a driver and they know who they are. And so it's a long-winded answer, but it's my kids. And it's just that they feel they didn't, they have what I didn't have with my parents. I wasn't close to my parents and I want them to go. They, my parents really helped us win. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. And then lastly here, before we wrap up, what parting words of wisdom or advice around either like personal development or personal branding would you like to leave the people listening? Yeah, no, good. Thank you for asking. I'll, I'll say three things to leave three, you know, here's the sum of everything we just talked about. Like if they, you want to listen just to the end of this episode, <laughs> this is what I would say. I would say number one, people buy human connection. Don't ever forget that people buy humans. They don't buy ventures, products, services. They buy the people behind it. I'd say number two, this is a really powerful one for me. Be the guide, never the hero of your story. Branding is about giving it away. You're the guide. You get on stage, give it away. The hero wins the audience. If you put, if you engage first and sell second, you'll sell a hell of a lot more in the end. And that is all driven by you are the guide. You are not the selfie queen. Branding is not about, personal branding is not about putting myself out there every day with a photo and a post. It is about giving away your worth. And I believe that is this one word idea. So be the guide, never the hero of your story. And then the third one is something I didn't do. And I do, I impart this on to people, nurture your future self. And, and I, I want to say that again, nurture your future self. You have got to be anticipatory in your thinking. You have got to know that every move you make young is going to have some impact later on. You, you, you can go for it. You know, so I'm not sitting here saying, you know, don't do certain things. But if you nurture that future self and get to my age and you do it right, you're going to be so much happier. I mean, Chase, so many people are unhappy in this world. I mean, it is the number one issue. People are unhappy. Mental health, it's a problem. So if you nurture this future self, reach out, get your mentors, get a board of advisors, get people that'll guide you and you nurture that and anticipate what's going to happen. I wish I would have done that. I, maybe in some ways I did, but I would be much more intentional about it if I was you know, my son's age or my daughter's age. So I would say um, nurture your future self. And then the last thing I would say is you get so much more when you give before you receive. That's it. Give it away be a giver and you will get, you will, you will take in so much more than you will ever give in the end. That's the irony. When you give, you get, and you get a lot more when you give. And so I just want everybody out there who's thinking about their own brand and their own ventures, um, give it away, give it away first. And then those people will tell other people and so on and so on. Um, don't put money first, engage first, sell second, and then you'll sell a hell of a lot more. Awesome. That's a great place to end here. Rich, Thank thanks you. again for coming on. This is great. I really appreciate. Thank you for allowing me to share my story. It, it's it's also very therapeutic, and um, 
I, I really, um, I'm very grateful that you invited me and thank you, Brian wish for the, yeah. uh, referral. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Where can people go to find you online and learn more about your work? Yeah. Yeah. So I just launched a podcast, uh, about a month ago. It's called the catalyst effect with rich, with rich Keller. And you can get it on any of the, um, places where you always, uh, watch you podcast, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google. My website's therichkeller.com. Um, it's therichkeller.com because Rich Keller was taken. And then LinkedIn, just type in Rich Keller Catalyst. I put my one word. I encourage everyone to put their one word as the opening of their uh, bios. Um, so Rich Keller Catalyst. Um, so yeah, so LinkedIn, my website, and then my uh, my new podcast. And my podcast is about showcasing the people that have wor- I worked with. So mm-hmm. anybody's interested in really understanding how this power of the one word works, that's the whole point of my podcast is to take the people I've been working with and um, put them out there and show people, let people listen to how they've really taken on the challenge and use their one word um, to showcase who they are. Awesome. And you, you all can also visit my website, chaserza.com and follow me on Instagram at chaserza4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks everyone who's listening and see you next time.